yeah, I was not, I mean, you know, I, yeah, whatever. Jeremy and Jacob here, our, our episode you're about to hear, which I'm probably going to have to break it. Yeah, I definitely have to break this into a two-parter. We welcome Ben Burgess back to the show to discuss his new book. Also, patholo- oh, talk about pathologies of the online left. We we wonder aloud if it's ever going to be possible if self-radicalized leftists can get out of the rut of, you know, maybe arguing about 100-year-old shit. 100-year-old nerd shit maybe a little bit too much. And a bunch of other Whether stuff. Whether or not January 6th actually happened or not. Yeah. Yeah, it's like teach the uh, January 6th, teach the controversy. There you go. So it is it is a wide a uh, a wide ranging conversation where at some point at the end we start ta- we uh, we even mentioned Dune because that's been on my mind lately for various reasons. Oh yeah, there's strip. Yeah, well there, yeah, there is that and I think they just released another trailer or something, you know, not too long ago. Uh, Jacob, yeah. where can where are you where could folks find you now? We'll get our we'll get our little personal plugs up front. I'm taking a little Twitch break, but I'm probably going to be back starting next month and we'll be doing some variety stuff like always. And that's Jacob Mercy on Twitch. Other than that, you know, if you really want to track me down, I would recommend. Well, I actually don't want you to now that I think about it, because I don't want to get canceled. So never well, there mind. you go. The. And as always, if you are if you are one of our Patreon supporters, you are hearing the show. You're here. You are hearing the show first, but in total before everybody else. For non Patreon folks, we're going to be splitting this up. You're going to have to wait a little bit. But if you want to hear, and may I just say, you look great today. But if you do want to hear us and help support the show, head to our Patreon. It's Patreon.com/slash Giving the Mic. We are also at Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Giving the Mic. Twitter, we're at Giving the Mic. And if you have any questions or comments, you can always email me giving the mic at gmail.com and right. if you're not listening to us on patreon early may i just say you look really tired there you go thank you jacob you're you're always reliable at expanding our audiences thumbs up indeed all right so yeah here is our extensive conversation with ben burgess over his about his book canceling comedians while the world burns a critique of the contemporary left uh, where at least we yeah we cover a lot of territory and i think we're you're going to enjoy this so without further ado here we go Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to Give the Mic to the Wrong Person. I am your friend and host, Jeremy, here with Jacob to bring back an old friend uh, to the show and on one of his many uh, pod uh, book uh, book tours appearances, as it were. Going to be interesting if book tours ever actually happen again, because even Powell's is doing like Powell's is doing like virtual author events because you actually had like Patrick Wyman interviewing Mike Duncan tonight, like two history, two history podcasters interviewing themselves for a Portland based bookstore. Anyway, um, Uh, does does Duncan have a new book out? What's that? Does Duncan have a new book out? Uh, Yes. It's called The Hero of Two Worlds. And you can order it now at your local bookstore. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I hope I I hope I get mentioned on the show for saying that now. I'm a huge revolutions mark, so nice. Yeah, Excellent. I was a big fan of History of Rome, and I'm like I'm nowhere near caught up, but I am like somewhere in like the Mexico season of revolutions. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I'm I'm a big fan. Yeah, I've uh, I think of the history pods that I've I think I was I kept up with the Age of Napoleon for a little while, but I would like dip in and out of revolutions, and I didn't really read much of read. I didn't really hear too many of like either the history of Rome or the uh, the tides of history episodes. 
Yeah, yeah, like Agent Napoleon, I I I had the guy who who does it on with Bhaskar Sankara for our best deal day stream on on give them an argument, which was fun. But but yeah, I think history of Rome is very very good. I mean, you know, there's a while it gets bogged down in the crisis of the third century, and there's like a new emperor every five days. And and that gets a little mind numbing after a while. But other than that, I loved History of Rome, and and the you know some seasons are more interesting than others. But I liked I liked you know I liked the the revolutions podcast. Like I think the the English Revolution season at the very beginning is really good, and the you know the French Revolution and the the, the Haitian Revolution one I also I really liked. Excellent. And yeah, that is our guest, Ben Burgess. Ben, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Returning champion, as it were. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. Yep. And Ben has a new-ish, kind of new-ish. I don't know. Is it like, like what, three or four I months out? May. I think we could say newish. Yeah, newish. Newish book out called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left brought to you by Zero Books that we will at least be ostensibly talking about before our inevitable tangents will have us wind, you know, winding off into some other, no doubt, deep and complicated topic. So I guess to 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 start things off as a, as a courtesy, Ben, could you could you, I guess, pitch your book for the audience? Sure. Yeah, so Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a Critique of the Contemporary Left, is, as the title suggests, a critique of contemporary left. And sometimes, like, if you look at, you know, like some one-star reviews on Amazon, some people see, you know, something about canceling and, you know, critique of the contemporary left and think, oh, good, I'll like this because this, uh, this must be... A, you know, this must be a right wing critique of the contemporary left. And then they are shocked and disgusted to, to actually read the thing and realize that the critique it contains is not like Dave Rubin's critique of the contemporary left. It's, it's coming from an entirely different direction because I'm somebody who, you know, I, I'm a, I, I'm a socialist. There's nothing particularly, you know, I, I don't necessarily think the most fire-breathingly radical slogans on every issue are useful, but there's certainly nothing that you would call, you know, heterodox or whatever in terms of political positions in there. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I am a very boringly straightforward socialist. I want, I want to have, you know, I want in the short term, you know, Medicare for all and free college and a Green New Deal and to abolish ICE and all that good stuff. In the long term, I, I, I want to, to move beyond, you know, capitalism entirely. I have a system where working people have vastly more control over their own lives on and off uh, the job and certainly you know socially progressive you know policies I, I, you know all that stuff goes goes that same from my perspective so why am I critiquing the left well I, I often think of something that the, the late Michael Brooks uh, once said on his weekend show they did with Anna Kasparian on Jacobin, which is that saying that somebody's against the left because they're critiquing the left is like saying that a basketball coach who makes his team do drills is against the team. The, the point is that I want to critique the left because I think we're missing a lot of shots uh, that we don't need to miss. And if you think about things uh, ranging from the you know DSA convention two years ago, we're actually about to come up to the new one but you know the one two years ago was in atlanta uh, jeremy and i were actually both both at that and some of the more notorious clips that circulated after that that strikes me as indicating a political subculture on the left where a lot of people are disturbingly indifferent to how what they say and do would read to anybody outside the bubble and and i think about things like 
the the next year you know the 2020 election cycle when bernie sanders was running for president which was by far the best opportunity for advancing at least some sort of robustly social democratic platform in many decades if ever mm, in the united mm-hmm. states and just before a, a crucial component of that the you know the iowa caucus joe rogan the podcaster and comedian you know probably the most popular podcaster in the world said that he was going to vote for bernie and and talked up bernie's virtues for for a minute and this is unambiguously good news if you if you want to win that you know that you have somebody who has a vast audience of not terribly political people might not necessarily vote in democratic primary who who says who says he's going to he's going to vote for you and you know and, and talks up why of course this is something that you would play up especially because Rogan is politically eclectic enough that it's it doesn't go without saying they vote for Bernie. In fact, doesn't go without saying they vote for any Democrat. And part of the pitch of the Bernie campaign was that he was a candidate who could appeal to people who wouldn't necessarily be counted on to vote for any Democrat. But despite this, there were you know I saw a lot of people you know, and some of this is you know ginned up by bad faith actors, supporters of other candidates, mm-hmm. but also an awful lot of people with that Democratic Socialist red rose emoji in their Twitter handles uh, saying, oh, this is terrible that Bernie Sanders accepted and touted the endorsement of this terrible, problematic person, Joe Rogan. And it's not just randos on Twitter. There are reports that that Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's somebody I like and support, you know, backed off from being more involved in the campaign because she, she agreed with the uh, the criticism that that's that's pretty disturbing and i tr- what i try to do in the book is take a step back and not just look at here are a bunch of left own goals right here are a bunch of ways in which you know it seems to me that we're screwing up and we're not doing what we need to do to appeal to the broadest possible mass of people to achieve all of those goals that we talked about earlier i don't just want to do that i also want to think about the common thread right like like why is it that we're doing all of this stuff, right. and and I and I try to advance a you know like advance an analysis of where it comes from in in terms of the left's long exile from 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 real power, but that's probably good enough for a uh, for a pitch. Excellent, thank you. And yeah, I was I was an attendee at the 2019 DSA National Convention. So yeah, I was definitely on that convention floor with a thousand people in that ballroom for God three days. I can't remember, and it, it got rough. So as a plenty of broadcast evidence were were were, were evidence to that. But yeah, thank you for the thank you for the summary. First question. This is a bit of, bit of an easy one. Is sure. If you had to do it all over again, would you have kept the book's title? Ooh, that is a good question. I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd be sort of tempted if I got that reset button to to call it something else because, you know, 2021 being what it is. I mean, look, there's right. a I mean, I knew that I was I knew that I was saying stuff in the book that would get people mad i mean that's that's baked in can't complain about that because i'm raising uncomfortable subjects right like this there's a reason why those thousand people at that dsa convention that nobody i mean you know private conversations maybe you know but but you know when one person says hey guys no whispering or crosstalk 
And then somebody else says, you know, point of personal privilege, hey, guys, is gendered language. There's a reason nobody gets up to say, oh, my God, you guys are being ridiculous. Stop it. Because, and one of those reasons, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to this, is that you don't become a socialist to get into fights with random eccentrics about nonsense, Right, like that—that—that's that, not the point, right? You—you—you—you you, you, you care about much bigger issues. You—you want to—you know—you want to do something about soaring economic inequality and police violence and imperialist wars and all that stuff. So, this—this this might just seem like a, a fight, you know, not worth picking, right? I mean, why get into a situation where you and your comrades are going to be yelling at each other over something that ultimately doesn't seem to be very important, which is an instinct I completely understand but you know but i wrote the book anyway because i think i think that that's ultimately a mistaken calculation i think that i think that some of these pathologies of the left really make it more difficult for us to to reach out to the people that we need to reach out to in order to achieve anything and so precisely because they're they're bigger fish to fry i think we need to to fry a few of these little ones so i knew people were going to get mad about it but the part that does feel a little naive in retrospect is I thought they were going to get mad about the things I actually say, like in all those pages. And there's a little bit of that here and there. But for the most part, like 999 out of every thousand people who got mad about it, they didn't read any of that. They, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's 2021. People don't read things. Yeah, people, yeah <laughs> that's that's the I mean, shit. What was it? It was an NPR a couple couple. God, it's been three or four years ago. Did their little April Fool's joke about that was effectively just a thing of posting on. It was, you know, something like people don't read except for the headline. And then you, you know, it's like deliberately there's like the hate clickbait uh, title. And you actually click through and they're like, yeah, this is, you know, we we're we're doing this article for a reason because people people don't read they just kind of react to headlines so yeah, exactly. I think, yeah it's so, like so, reacting to the so title people, in the vast majority of cases they got mad you know because the the cover i mean you know the you know because of that that title so of course i am somewhat tempted to think okay in the world where i could hit the reset button let's just call the fucking thing something else yeah so you know so as to to, to nip all that in the bud on the other hand the reason i'm not sure is that one i don't know what the pretext would have been for getting mad about it without having to engage in the context in that world. It's it's possible that in the world where I'd given it a more anodyne title, you know, it, it would have, you know, there would have been some equally, equally silly thing that everybody focused on instead of the content. Two, I mean, there is a reason that I went with that title because it was an expression of some really deep frustration that I was feeling when I wrote it. And and the the point of a title like that is to kind of, you know, shake people by the collar and say, this is really important. You know, you should listen to this. Right. And I don't know that I want to completely lose that. But, yeah, I guess in the magical reset world, I would I would maybe, you know, I don't know if I if, if after the reset I had a day to think it over, you know, I might try to brainstorm a different title. So, you know, to see if I could express some of that without getting quite that reaction. There you go. Excellent. Jacob. As far as the contents of the book, what yeah. would you say have has really gotten people the most riled up? Yeah, so I think that, as always, right, like the stuff that I would have necessarily would have maybe like predicted, nobody's got, you know, like, 
you know, nobody, nobody's had that big a problem with. And, the, and some of the stuff that I wouldn't have thought was would be the most controversial parts are, although not entirely, there is some overlap between what I might have expected. So I think the two things uh, that I have seen people who actually, like, read some of those pages before getting mad about the book, point two are, one, the chapter called Antifa and the Pathologies of uh, Powerlessness, which in which I, I talk about I talk about Andy No and and I talk about in general the you know the fixation with you know the way that some of that anti-fi activism works and that the things that I think are, are counterproductive and and sort of play into the hands of of the right and and don't really necessarily focus on the most important threats and so on and so forth and I've definitely seen seen people call attention to that chapter although often in a weird way it's like there's it's it's like i get the sense that that there's something that didn't sit right with them about that chapter but oftentimes they seem to have trouble articulating exactly what it was well like that's the one that made me maddest so maybe okay, we can figure okay. that out right. so, so so fair enough maybe you can maybe you can shed some light on that and then the uh, then the other one actually probably that's gotten more than, than that one is the 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 tank user records chapter and i think part of the reason why is that in that case i think a lot of people who who were actually willing to give the book a read and and you know and and got to, i mean that's pretty late in the book you know they, they got that far are people who might have agreed with a lot of the rest of what i wrote but but are you know, but are like led much less sympathetic to you know to what I say in 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 that chapter, which I which I can understand, right? Like I disagree, but I can understand because I think that I think that there's a certain way in which some people end up being like I think there are there are ways that from a reasonable starting point people end up as being apologists for past authoritarian regimes that use left symbolism. Which again, I think, is massively counterproductive in terms of reaching out to people that we'd, we'd have to convince to get on board with a socialist project. I mean, if you're trying to convince people that that we could actually have much more democracy than we have under under capitalist democracies, combining that with but actually these these late 20th century police states weren't all that bad. You know, seems like you know at best it's muddling the message. But I but I get it, right? I, I think that people I think that some people have a very good and defensible thought, but then they take it in a place that I wouldn't, right? So the good and defensible thought is, hey, a lot of people in past revolutions were having to deal with like unimaginably you know bad circumstances and and really rough situations and it's very easy to say from the comfort of you know i mean a hundred years later i'm at what's that a hundred years later yeah the comfort of a hundred years later and you know i mean the i'm actually physically located right now in the salt of the earth upper midwest but just to just to make this more vivid let's say like sitting in a coffee shop in brooklyn uh a hundred years later and 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 say oh no, no no i wouldn't have done any of that right like like that there's something sort of silly and contemptible about that and that's 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 reasonable right? the reason i think that they take that defensible thought and go too far with it is that it's completely compatible right like there's no incompatibility between saying on the one hand hey it is com- you know you can totally understand how some of these efforts took a wrong turn 
under these circumstances, and I absolutely don't think that I would have done any better had I been put in the same situation. That's completely compatible with saying, that said, it was a wrong turn, and and the, and the what resulted from that was something that, you know, did a lot of long-term damage to the socialist cause, you know, by, by being something that right-wing anti-communists could point to forever afterwards, like, oh, that's what you want? Yeah. You know, Stalin's Russia, and 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 was something that lots of people who lived under those those systems had had good reasons to to resent. So, I think those are I think I think I think those are are incompatible. I think those are compatible, and I try to sort of lay all that out in the chapter. But I also I also get that like even using the word tankies, which I'm I, w- I was being a little playful. You know, with with that chapter title, you know, since wreckers is something that people were accused of being in Soviet show trials, you know, so saying tank user wreckers, you know, but it's a, um, but I understand some people see that word tankies and that's enough to be like, no, I'm out. I'm not listening to what you have to say now. Tanky is a slur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those. Uh, it's one of many political words that people who it applies to think is a slur. Yeah, for folks interested in this, more of this conversation, I would recommend checking out Ben's recent talk with Kuber Wisniewski. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I don't think anybody knows how to. And Jean Bajalan on a Ben show, giving them an argument that happened shit two years, two weeks ago. What two weeks? No, three weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Whatever. Like that, yeah. A few weeks ago, that was a nice talk about yeah. N- a warning of like the modern left of like yeah don't idolize certain historical figures like Stalin and or FDR although I don't remember if you guys ever got around to talking about FDR or not yeah we we did do a little FDR at the end which which we kind of threw in for a couple reasons uh, one of which is that you know to try to kind of draw like a bigger lesson right you know that, that it's not just about this thing you know that there's there's a there's a bigger thing to think about here mm-hmm. and and also because I I think you know. I think that it's it's worth like you know trying to think a little bit more critically about both of those those experiences, especially if if what we want to do is put forward a a vision politically that you know goes well beyond New Deal liberalism, you know, but like also let's not have gulags. Right. What's been your favorite reaction to the book so far? Either honest or amusing, an amusing review or, you know, just, I guess, any sort of reaction. Yeah. Well, okay. So I will, I'll do two if that's okay. I think, Go for uh, it. so, cause they're from very, very different directions. So one is Nando Vila who, who did, who, who did, who actually did like a little video about it after after he read it which which you can find you know posted that a few places and and put in an episode of of give them you know of give them an argument because nando is such a you know i mean like he's a, he's a very smart guy and he's he's very you know he's very like politically grounded and 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 passionate and and i think that it, it you know like you know if he hadn't liked it, I would have been very disappointed by that, you know, but like I, I, I was very happy about Nando's video about it. And then uh, the other one, which is the which is the hilarious one, is a one Dr. Jordan Peterson. So did he do uh, a, a written or a video review? Uh, written. Now, to be oh. fair, this wasn't exactly a review, oh, but what he did is he so there was a review in 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 quillette which which was like an okay review i mean it was a like i was kind of dreading it honestly mm. when i saw that they, they had because i i talked some shit about that magazine in the book at the uh, at the very end 
And so I would have been very unsurprised if if they had if they had done a thorough trashing of of the book. But you know the way these things work out, you know there's even though the the overall political tilt of that magazine is certainly not to my liking. You know, there are a range of people who who write for it and, you know, and the, the person I guess this assigned this to or who just offered to review it for them is somebody who I guess didn't care about that. And it was, you know, I think there were some signs here and there in his review that the guy is probably, you know, not a comrade. Right. You know, he's probably not coming from a, a far left perspective, but he got what I was doing with the book. And I liked the review just fine, you know. But then, then enter Dr. Peterson who might or might not have read the review. It's possible that all he read was Quillette's tweet of the review. Whether or not he read the review, I am certain that he did not read the book. Certainly not all the way to the end. Uh, the reason that I feel I feel absolutely certain about that last point is that the book includes in in the very last that last section, you know, the bonus essay, a, a review, a, a description of of Peterson, you know, Peterson's debate with Slavoj Zizek, and uh, and that description is not kind. That to, uh, description is actually very ironic because you say. Peterson started his opening presentation by admitting that, A, he hadn't bothered to read any of Zizek's books in preparation for the debate, and that the only marks he'd read was the Communist Manifesto. So I'm detecting a, a pattern here. Well, yes, I think there is definitely a pattern. Even, he, uh, yeah, even, even like celebrated, author, celebrated best-selling authors don't read, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Which... Yeah, that thing, yeah, 12 Rules for Life is monstrously best-selling. Like, I think that thing is still probably in, like, the top, you know, 100 or so most sold books on, on Amazon uh, a couple of years later. But, but yeah, so that's, you know, he quote tweeted, like, Quillette's tweet of the review, and he said, you know, he said something about only the best of the left can, can save us from the worst of the left, which was, which gave me a golden opportunity to quote tweet that with the screenshots of all the stuff I'd said about him in the book and to uh, suggest that having designated me as the best of the left, I really can't imagine why he wouldn't be interested in having a discussion of, of my critique of him from the book. But oddly enough, I don't, I don't know, man, it's been, it's been a couple of months and I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard back on that invite. So I'm not sure what's going on there. No, no, it got lost and got lost in the spam filter. Mm. Lamentable. Jacob. Yeah. Oh, your turn. Oh, I had a couple of questions, actually. Uh, first, you recently went on Glenn Greenwald's show to discuss the book. Yep. And you mentioned platforming, but you never actually got into that. And I was very interested to hear your thoughts on the whole platforming question. And, you know, obviously, ironically, Glenn is sort of a great example of that issue, because anytime you read any tweet from Glenn Greenwald, you're going to see a dozen people posting underneath it. Why don't you tell that to your best friend, Tucker Carlson? Is that what Tucker Carlson told you? Why don't you support white supremacism some more by going on Tucker Carlson? And so, I mean, this is obviously something that is, I think, becoming uh, an increasingly big issue. Like, I, I actually, even with the Bernie thing, I remember that there were some people online who said, well, maybe Bernie should try to get on Rogan. And that led to a whole lot of very excited chatter. So. I was curious yeah. to get like what 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 was your take on the platforming thing? Yeah, and even before Bernie went on Rogan, he he did a uh, town hall at a Fox News, and that was also very controversial, right? I mean, there are there's I mean, I I wrote an article about this at the time, uh, so this would have been eh, 
sometime in 2019. I don't remember exactly. I think but this like, was like after September. It was definitely it was before 2020. But yeah, definitely like like fall or later. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it was probably like yeah October, November 20, uh, 2019, and I wrote an article about it at the time. I think you can still find online. It's called "Be Like Bernie and Give Them an Argument," and and I think there are a couple. There are a couple of things I find funny here. So, and I should say too, you know, having mentioned his, you know, his name since, as you know, Glenn occupies a lot of space in a lot of people's heads, and for better for worse. And you know, and I, I think he he's somebody of, you know, yeah. I went on a show to talk about the book System Update, and 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 he's. You know, and and I've I've had him on as a guest a couple times, and before I had my own show, you know, when I was when I was on TMBS, you know, he he was a guest there, you know, a couple times, and you know, I I think he's somebody I disagree with about about certain things. I mean, I think that he he has very different, like I think with very few exceptions, like his actual policy positions are fine, right? Like that they, they're 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 like at least sort of solidly left progressive you know with the exception of like a sort of weird defensiveness about the the like institutions of the senate which you know i i i think that's the only example i can think of actually where he has a bad policy position that i know of you know my i agree with i agree with eli mistel that the that the abolishing the senate should have been a condition for the surrender at appomattox but but other than that, right? He seems to have good policy positions, but he he does. But I think he has some of his evaluations of political actors and and what and what can be expected of them. I think I think are wrong. This is something I argued with him about a little bit. But when when I was on System Update, and and I've you know I argued with him a little bit about it on Twitter this afternoon before we uh, before we recorded this. And and I think this is this is kind of where I'd, I'd really put my my commie hat on. I you know sort of imagine a fur hat with the, some red stars or something. But and and say that the problem with Glenn is that when he, you know, when he like maybe takes the idea that like right wing economic populism is a real thing more seriously than he should than anybody should because it's not a real thing. Yeah. That's my position right like that'd be a little off topic but if anybody wants to get into that i'd be happy to but that just to lay down a marker right that's my view that's not a real thing i i think that that's because he doesn't have a materialist analysis of politics right so when you don't have an analysis in terms of like the relationship between class forces it's easy to think well politicians can just kind of mix and match preferences at will and that's how things happen politically, and and I think that's just that's just wrong. So I I do have a critique of of Glenn. I also think that you know I also think that like he's done much more positive things for the world than any of us probably ever will, because uh, by reporting the the NSA leaks and showing that they were lying about surveilling all of us, and uh, and by helping to inshallah bring down Jair Bolsonaro's uh, government. In in Brazil, you know, by 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 exposing the 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 frame up uh, politically motivated frame up of Lula da Silva, all of which is just to say that I mean I don't think you know I don't think we should be too obsessed about the moral you know the moral quality of of any individual personality anyway. I mean that's kind of the what I'm trying to get away from in this book, trying to critique you know the left for being doing too much of, but 
You know, so like, I don't think the main question that preoccupies us should be, is Glenn Greenwald going to hell or not? But, but if that is a question that we're going to be interested in, I'd say all that stuff I just mentioned should definitely buy him some indulgences. But, and yet, I don't think it would necessarily with a lot of people online, particularly people on the left. No, I don't, I don't think it would. I think it should. Right. But but I don't I don't think it would. I mean, as you said, lots of people are obsessed with 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 hating them, which I I sort of get. But I also find a little depressing, you know, not just because I have a different feeling about them, but also because it's also because it just seems like a really unhealthy sign, you know, that like it, it seems like a sign of being way too focused on on this kind of absolutist moral judgment of individuals it's a sign of having a very superficial view about politics that's all about like which cable talk shows you know you you go on which of course takes us back to your original question about platforming so i got so off to track. be clear though you don't feel ashamed of either platforming or being platformed by glenn greenwald i just want no, that on the record <laughs> no no not not in the not in the slightest uh all right the, you know, I mean, especially the second time. So, and and that's a good distinction to make because oftentimes it's weirdly not right. Like made in these discussions that people will use the word platforming when they're what they're actually talking about is being platformed by, right? Like 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 Bernie Sanders platformed neither Joe Rogan nor nor Fox News. He he was platformed by them, you know. And that's that's maybe not a unimportant distinction, but you know that these are people who don't need platforms for the left yeah. uh, they already have massive platforms but also also yeah i'm not at all i'm not at all ashamed of that i i i'm especially i mean the you know the first time he was on uh, he was on give them an argument you know we it was you know we talked a little bit about his departure from the intercept and what his political positions were and that's fine right you know that that was like a perfectly good segment i'm, I'm happy about but the second time he was on I, I i regard that as like maybe the best maybe the best interview that we've ever done you know on the show because that was the one where he was talking about brazil and 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 he his book secure democracy about you know the publishing those documents and you know all of the fallout from from publishing those documents in brazil like a trending topic on brazilian twitter for like months was deport glenn he, he couldn't go anywhere without had being like in an armored car with you know security guards this is a much more serious level of commitment to at, yeah. at least undermining a dangerous right-wing government than than i think most people have ever been called on to to show and you know so i'm 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 if anything proud that he was on our show to talk about it but but yeah i think that on on platforming i i i think that like i mean we're really talking about a couple different things we talk about platforming they're all kind of run together by the use of that word one of them is deplatforming, which means like trying to prevent people from from speaking one of them is just like going on platforms right like like going on shows or being published in certain venues or whatever right you know like and and then maybe in between is like debating people you know since that's a sort of you know that's a sort of exchange of platforming and and i think but i i have more or less the same view in all cases which which is that i think that i think that all this is very bad news i think that there's a i think that there's a lot of people on the left think that deplatforming has positive effects that I just don't believe that it has. I, I think that like it's very hard to find deplatforming success stories. They you know, and like I've even heard, you know, I mean, look, like everybody else who's like a fully paid up member of the human race, I thought it was funny when Richard Spencer was punched, but because like, okay, A, he's a Nazi and B, like 
you know, he has like one of the most punchable faces in, in human history, like like just just a sort of like Nazi used car salesman kind of persona. Right. But but also the idea that like Richard Spencer is some sort of deplatforming success story, I don't really buy that, right? I think Richard Spencer is somebody who had fifteen minutes of fame, but he never had a base. He, uh, he there was never like a, a segment of the population that that you know that was like more than 0.01% that like actually liked what he had to say he was he he was somebody who got to go on CNN and whatever as a sort of novelty circus act you know the polite and and well-groomed nazi and the fact that everybody thought it was funny when he was punched and you know all of the remix videos and everything pretty much speaks to to his lack of a base. I mean, if Ben Shapiro were punched in the face tomorrow, that would not play the same way, right? You know, because because there are actually people who like what he, you know, unfortunately, you know, there are people who like the guy and who like what he has to say. I've even heard people call say that Milo Yiannopoulos is a uh, deplatforming success story, and that one seems particularly crazy to me because no, he's not. Yeah, my, yeah, my, yeah. Milo wasn't. Milo wasn't like didn't have his career taken away by the left trying to deplatform him. Milo's career was built on the left trying to deplatform him. That was his entire shtick. It was the dangerous ideas tour that like, look, you know, I'm so, you know, the, my, the truths that I speak are so, you know, the, the jokes that I tell, whatever are so edgy and, and, and out there that they, that people can't handle it. It's radioactive. I mean, this is the same, this, I mean, the entire, you know, so-called intellectual dark web, same deal. I mean, that's the metaphor that this is like, you know, buying drugs or online or something. You know, you, you have to do this in the dark web, you know, these dangerous ideas. Milo's career was ended because the right dropped him yeah. uh, because of comments on age of consent. So I'm, I'm very skeptical about the benefits of deplatforming. And then I think when it comes to being platformed, or exchange of platforms. I, I think that platforming taboos are are profoundly counterproductive, especially in an era where where the media is as segmented as it is right now. You know, if if look, I would I would love it if everybody who currently watches Fox News was willing to watch I don't even know what, like, you know, Rising and the Young Turks, something like that to see to see Bernie there. They're not gonna. Right. Like if you want to if you want to reach those people, you got to reach, you know, you got to be on the platform. They're actually going to watch. And and I think that I, I think that you should absolutely venture into enemy territory where it's possible to, you know, to get the, you know, not to be Alan Combs about it, but to 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 get, you know, to to get your perspective out there to people who wouldn't otherwise hear it. And and I think that the and I think that the taboos against talking to certain people, you know, I mean, whatever. This is not an absolute statement. I'm sure you could come up with a counterexample that I would agree with, right? Like, hey, if, if Richard Spencer crawled out from whatever sewer he's in and said, I want to debate Ben Burgess, right? I don't think I would do that because, like, you know, at this point, that would be doing him a favor, right? You know, and I, and I, and I wouldn't do that, right? But, like, with very few, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, but with very few exceptions, I think that not talking to people is counterproductive. I think that it. I think that it sends. I think that it misses the opportunity to to reach out to people you wouldn't otherwise be able to reach out to. And I think it. I think it's a propaganda gift to the right. I think it makes it look like like we really are afraid of their dangerous ideas that we have nothing to say in response to those ideas. How much of the and this actually connects up with the another question I had was how much of the 
the hubbub around platforming and deplatforming come is is almost primarily you know almost singularly a an entirely moralistic like puritanical and like i you know aspects of like similar to like a liberal thing of like you can't oh, like you can't understand the enemy's position they're bad and wrong and even you know even if you so much as like go on their show or or like talk about this stuff you are so, because you are responding to this position with anything other than complete and total uh denunciation like you are somehow like helping it or you know just trying to understand it all you're, you or you are leaving yourself open to being to being infected by it because it's one of the things that I was one of the one of the questions that I'd written down earlier was trying to think about like what do you think is going on with whenever when just the, you try to suggest to some people that hey maybe we th- should think strategically about cer- a certain thing uh, or handle handle it a certain uh, handle it something strategically rather than kind of this like you know than this moralistic reflexiveness but it's also you get you'll get put you know you'll kind of get a freak a freak out or a pushback just by th- you know suggesting this the strategic approach rather than the kind of like moral you know the total moralistic rejection like what is going on there yeah i i think that i think that's very insightfully put i think that there are maybe a couple of of things going on here yeah one of them i mean i i think i think it does all get down to to moralism which is by the way maybe a term worth unpacking a little bit since sometimes when you say you know moralism is bad right what some people insist on hearing is that like morality is bad yeah you know? any ethical yeah. consideration is uh is yeah yeah and that that's not the point at all right like i think that you know what i mean by you know like moralism is a excessive preoccupation with the moral evaluation of of individuals, which I think is bad for a couple reasons. One of which is that it's what we should be focusing on. I mean, what what the left almost definitionally is supposed to be focusing on is not individual moral virtue at all, but 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 unjust social institutions. That that's that's the whole point, right? I mean, like in some ways, that's that's the that's a foundational difference between the left and the right. You know, which one of those you see as as kind of more primary, mm-hmm. and. And it's it's not again it's not a it's not an issue saying oh you know any kind of ethical consideration shouldn't be you know shouldn't be part of any argument you make or anything like that. Quite the contrary, I mean, saying uh, trying to change unjust social institutions that that is a moral impulse. For that matter, on the level of individuals, you know, forgiveness and redemption are moral impulses. You know, moralism is something I object to primarily i mean this would be the focus in the book because i think it's counterproductive it 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 takes it takes our eye off the ball that should be on but also i think you can critique it on purely moral grounds that it's something that actually makes us less empathetic because because we get way too focused on sorting everybody into the good box or the bad box right and and i think that this this does definitely come up in in some of the destructive ways in, in what you're talking about i mean like look at the way that over the course of the last man what is you know it's, it's, this is 2021 five years the last five years it's it's become such a punchline to use the phrase economic anxiety to describe anybody who voted for for trump there's just this kind of like it's it's like almost this pavlovian reaction 
right. to, to, to even saying economic anxiety because the idea is, and you know, this is primarily a lib thing, but I think it's infected some of the left for sure, that, oh, if you're, if you're critiquing, you know, if you're critiquing, you're saying about you know trump voters that they they had you know they had these economic motivations then you're then you're letting them off the hook for being racist and fascist and terrible people and and so you're you're like siding with them you know yeah. you're, you're you know and and that's which is terrifically counterproductive and and silly i mean the this is i mean for one thing if you're gonna play the game of saying that if you vote for, you know if you voted for a bad person you know if you voted for a bad politician you're a bad person then you know that cuts both ways right as right as i'm sure any number of jill stein voters would be happy to tell you you know that 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 can that can be a I mean, if you oh, what you voted for that Democrat who, you know, who who murders children in drone strikes. But also, it's something. As far as where it comes from, I think where it comes from is, and this gets right to the nub of one of the big themes of the book, is that up until very very recently, if you had any kind of political perspective to the left of liberalism you were just way the hell out wandering in the in the wilderness like i mean people i mean i'm, I'm really going to start to sound like a, a crotchety old man here but like you know people who who became leftists in 2017 like have you know like man i cannot tell you how bad how bad it was you know before then one word ad busters <laughs> Exactly right. So uh, it's it's so like the difference between then and now is remarkable. And by the way, right now, I mean we are hilariously and tragically far from like you know taking power. Right. But but compared to like 2015, my God, there are uh, several members of Congress who call themselves socialists. DSA is is rounding on to you know a hundred thousand members it's i mean this is this is just a, a very very different environment you know from from what existed uh, back then but i think we have a lot of bad habits left over from you know 2015 or, or even earlier more godforsaken times and and i think that i think that because we were so much further out in the wilderness before very recently then it got very easy if you were a leftist in like god the 90s right it i mean i basically you had two choices you could either essentially become a liberal who who had a sort of like you know where where any sort of residual commitment you had to socialism was like a sort of like you know it was like going to church right you know you live your life in the world six days a week and you know and and, and on Sunday you listen to a nice sermon you know and and that's that's it right like so either you became a liberal with some abstract theoretical commitment to something something to the left of that that didn't fit very well with it in practice see what the nation magazine was like in the 1990s you know to get a sense of what that posture looks like or you know i mean frankly even like dissent in the in the 90s or or you became a kind of a marginal crank i mean because realistically you know as a smart german guy once said you know men make their own history but they don't make it under conditions of their own choosing you know that, those were kind of the yeah. the choices dictated by dictated by the circumstances either you were you know on sitting on the sidelines you know angrily rereading noam chomsky or or you or you essentially were just a liberal in in day-to-day politics and under those circumstances it's very easy and very understandable to see how people could get used to thinking of politics not as a concrete project 
to change the world, but as a symbolic performance of moral opposition to the many very real injustices around them. This, this is how, how you end up doing things like, you know, voting for people who nobody, who like 99.9% of Americans have never heard of, because at least it makes you feel like you've, you've distinct, differentiated yourself right. from, from the regular capitalist politics, or, or you end up doing things like pouring all of your energy into some, you know, internecine conflict within a sub socialist organization that has like 50 members from coast to coast. But like, at least if you've taken over that organization, Hey, taking over something yeah. feels better than not having any influence on anything. And I think this is just more of the same, right? Like that this is that why are people so focused on retaining the ability to, to just hate their enemies, not just the people who should be hated, right? Your, your Donald Trump's and, you know, Mitch McConnell's and whatnot, you know, or, or Chuck Schumer's for that matter, right? You know, they like, not just the people who should be hated, but like, just like regular working class people who watch a different cable news channel than you do, or, or might vote differently. Like that, what, why is it so important to so many people on the left to, to maintain the purity of their hatred towards even like the foot soldiers of reaction? It's certainly not because they think I don't think anybody thinks that like somehow if you hate them enough, like that'll lead to good good material outcomes. I mean, yeah, I don't, you'll, I don't you'll, think anybody's quite that far. Yeah, gone. But you'll you'll make you'll make them do a face turn through the power of your hatred. Right, exactly. Right. I don't think anybody really thinks that. I think that what it gets down to is that if you if you see politics essentially as a symbolic moral performance, then yeah, I mean, why? Like, if you're, it it makes sense that you wouldn't want to water down that performance. Right. If that's mm-hmm. all you have is is your own kind of virtuous stand, right? Anything that makes it feel like you're compromising that stand feels like a retreat, even if it makes it actually slightly more likely yeah. that you're going to accomplish something in material reality. And we're back. Uh, Jacob, Jacob, did you have a question? Because I have a couple loaded up. Oh, I got I got plenty of questions. Actually, I wanted to circle around to the deplatforming thing. And I think I do have an example that I think okay. I, I'm not sure if I would declare it a success or not, but I would declare it interesting. And that is the case of one Alex Jones. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because, you know, Alex is somebody who had, an, I would say, sort of an increasing presence, an increasing audience. And then there was that wave where he got dropped from Facebook, he got dropped from Twitter, he got dropped from YouTube. And I listened to a podcast called Knowledge Fight, which actually tracks him and sees what he's up to and debunks some of his more outrageous claims. And I think they make a fairly persuasive case that the deplatforming of him has been actually quite successful. Yeah, I think that's plausible. I mean, maybe there's a distinction that we should make here that that maybe I didn't make before, which is that when it's like, you know, student activists deplatforming people or trying to deplatform people, usually they don't usually succeed. Sometimes they succeed, but usually they don't succeed. There's uh, a difference between institutional deplatforming and individuals, you know, grabbing a mic on stage. Yeah. 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 Exactly. The like grabbing the mic on stage, deplatforming. I think at least as a general rule, is extremely counterproductive. I think there are a lot of careers on the right wing that are built off of that. But like, yeah. I mean, YouTube deplatforming somebody. Yeah, that can be really effective because I mean, like they they unfortunately, right? We live in an unspeakable late capitalist hellscape where like three corporations 
have an immense amount of control over the flow of information. And yeah, if, if those corporations decide to shut you up, like they could actually shut you up. So yeah, I, I agree that probably the that probably the Alex Jones case is a pretty successful deplatforming. Would you go on a show? <laughs> I am trying to imagine what that would be like. Loud. It would be loud. It would be loud. Ask him about right. ask him about Richard Linklater and like what Austin was like in the nineties or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah just well, don't talk about politics. You'll be fine. That would actually that would be hilarious. If I went on Alex Jones. And we didn't talk about politics. He you know he claimed in his divorce case that he he only got high once a year to test the potency of the weed. So um, you know maybe maybe I could help him run a test. But <laughs> I got to sample but, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But but yeah, it, it is funny that you mentioned that, Jeremy, because because I actually am extremely fond of two movies that both have Alex Jones cameos in them, which so those were Scanner Darkly. Yeah, Scanner Darkly and, and Waking, Waking Life. Life. Saw them both at the theater. Which, yeah, which is funny, because I think that when Linklater made those movies, Alex Jones was just this kind of like colorful local character. Yeah. Just, you know, weird you have to count. Yeah, weirdo you'd see in public access and shit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe that'd be. I mean, I don't know. Fuck it. You only live. You only live once. Maybe I would. Maybe I would go on Alex Jones. You know, like I, I get him. You know, to to the point where he, like, if if I could get him to the point where he was like, you know, tearing off his shirt, angry and screaming about, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever he said to Piers Morgan. You know, seventeen seventy six will begin again. Like that. That would be such a like really. Like just in terms of of comic relief weirdness, the all time highlight of my argument with right wingers is Jesse Lee Peterson. But like Alex Jones would be a lot funnier than that. I'm not, yeah. now. You're giving me the idea, the the mental image of wondering what would happen if if Andrew Callaghan, from uh, formerly of All Gas No Breaks, now of Channel Five News, what would happen if he if he interviewed Alex Jones in his very particular idi- idiom? Because he's got he has a talent for like asking people what you know one and two word questions and then getting the uh, the best responses from it. But but just to be fair though, I, I do want to present the other side of this argument. Yeah. Which- that one of the things that knowledge fight also brings up is that Alex has taken some pretty grim directions ever since that he platforming and he's been saying some pretty disturbing things, but not only that, he's been having Nick Fuentes on. Oh boy. And on top of that has apparently given Nick his own like little news session on his website. I don't think it's on the Infowars broadcast proper, but you know, Fuentes is, I would say, much closer to Richard Spencer in that regard. And it's interesting and somewhat disturbing to see Jones kind of heading in that direction. Yeah, Fuentes was the one who, am I remembering the right guy, that he was the one who, like, ambushed Ben Shapiro while Shapiro was, like, just walking down the street with his family to, like, yell at him about, I don't even remember exactly what he was yelling at him about, probably criticizing Trump or something. But, like, I, I remember seeing that video and thinking that, like, I would have never believed that I was capable of that much sympathy for Ben Shapiro because he's like literally walking down the street with his like wife and their baby and like this lunatic is like following them around yelling at them. But but I mean, yeah, Fuentes is a white nationalist. I yeah. mean, it's yeah, he'll, he'll dance around the term a little bit, but I think that's obvious. You know, he'll talk about how this is a white nation and, you know, we're the, he's a big fan of the the Great Replacement. What is it? Great replacement theory, yeah, we're real yeah. fun stuff. He's he's a major proponent of that, and yeah. I mean that's a he's been you know getting into fights with Charlie Kirk about immigration and stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
which, I mean, Charlie Kirk, I would expect, is starting out with an already pretty bad position on that. I mean, he was he was a Trump guy, so so I, I can I can imagine where Fuentes might be landing. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know. I mean, Alec, I mean, Alex Jones is certainly somebody who's who's gotten like increasingly you know toxic probably over the years, partially probably because of the market imperatives of doing what he does. That you know that the yeah, at this point, the uh, the right wing ecosystem is is so full of of conspiracy theorists and 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 ranters that that Jones like might feel the need to like up the ante just to you know just to kind of stand out a little bit in the marketplace. Yeah, uh, he's no longer the only bag of spicy chips on the shelf for sure. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah. But, I mean, just real quick, would would yeah, yeah. you say that you're okay with him getting institutionally deplatformed? I think that probably not. Although the reason that it's probably not, rather than definitely not, is that the like I think that I think it's really disturbing that like YouTube and some of these others can like shut people down, even like a very popular show with like very little explanation yeah, of, of, of what they're doing or yeah. what the justification is supposed to be flipping a switch. Yeah, exactly. So I, I definitely don't like that. And, and the fact that they, you know, the terms of service are extremely vague and enforced in a pretty inconsistent way. And there's no meaningful due process or ability to appeal. I don't like any of that, but the reason that it's probably not definite is that some of what seems to have provoked Jones is getting shut down is the kind of thing that even in a much more reasonable system where you had like a very clearly written terms of service and tons of due process and all that stuff that I'd like, even in that more reasonable system, like some of the stuff you really just can't do, right? Like, like if, if you're, if you're like doing anything that would be like inciting people to like harass the like Sandy Hook parents, yeah, like, that's the kind of thing that that a a future you know God willing nationalized you know version of YouTube that you know tended to err on the side of respecting free speech might still really not let you you know let you do that. So that's why it's just probably yeah, yeah. they're violating the cardinal rule of, of no families, as they say. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, the what, like one of the last big questions that I did have was I don't go here I wrote this one down. Is okay. Given the attack that has kind of reemerged after the collapse of the Bernie campaign and the uprising, <laughs> could you attempt to describe the, what seems to be the popular definition of the slam class reductionism or class reduction is actually is like what is actually meant by that? And like, what is the function of that term getting thrown around again? Yeah, um, I do. I believe you do talk about that in the book, too. I do a little bit. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, oftentimes people who who throw it around a lot aren't terribly concrete about what they mean, and and it gets a little frustrating because I think so, I I get the feeling sometimes that when you press them about it, you know that the goalposts often get changed. But what it see what the accusation seems to amount to is the idea that not just like analytically. That like that there's some sense like because you know when I hear the word reductionism I mean what the switch that gets turned on in my my head is the is the like analytic philosophy nerd and I think okay so like reductionism like you can explain one thing you know in ultimately in terms of another thing like you know I don't know chemistry ultimately reduces to physics yeah that's like positivism and, positivism isn't there something or 
Positivism, that's how you say that. Or positivism. You know, and, and, and if that were all that was meant, that like that you could do that with 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 class, with, with other forms of, of, of injustice, then I think that would be kind of a weird thing to like I don't think it would be an entirely correct position. But I, I, I think it would also be a weird position to get mad about, right? Like, because that's sort of, like, if it's just kind of an abstract theoretical analysis of, like, where different social phenomena come from, then it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, that's kind of class reductionism in that sense. is just kind of classical Marxism, which is, you know, mostly correct, probably has some flaws, you know, but, but is, I think, I think correct enough to get the the right political results you know even if you know history is always messy and complicated and 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 is it's it's hard to fit everything into reductive explanations i'm sure you know in in any case i don't think that's what people typically mean i think what they typically mean when they talk about class reductionism is really like class i don't know exclusivism or something you know that seems to be what what's meant in most uses of the accusation, that what people mean when they say class reductionism is the idea that, you know, racism and sexism and homophobia and all of that stuff are unimportant and all we should all we should ever talk about is economics or or maybe that like if we take care of the economic stuff, all those other things will take care of themselves. And so we just, you know, so, so in practice, we shouldn't worry about it or, you know, they can all, all the rest of those things can kind of wait, you know, until after the revolution, so to speak. I think that that's roughly the position that people are trying to describe when they, they use the term class reductions and that everything else just sort of dissolves into the single issue of, of economic redistribution or class struggle. If that's what it means, and again, that's, that's what most people who use it seem to mean by it, then, you know, which I, one, I think it's an extremely serious accusation because, like, look, as, as somebody who obviously does care very much about all those things, I mean, like, if, if you're saying, like, oh, you're somebody who's at best indifferent to the effort to, to, to redress racism and sexism and homophobia and all that, you know, those are fighting words. Like, you shouldn't say that unless you can really back that up. Yeah. Uh, and I am not seeing a lot of people making it and also backing it up. I think that the, like, I see it made a lot towards people like Adolf Reed, for example, which there's often an irony here if you wanted to, were inclined to dwell on it, of predominantly white leftists, you know, getting mad at a uh, black man who grew up in the Jim Crow South for not understanding that racism is a big deal. And, and I think that... It's just not true, right? In that case, like, 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 generally speaking, whenever I get into conversation about class reductionism, I always think of that moment in the uh, Zizek-Peterson debate when Zizek asked Peterson, you know, says, look, you're always talking about postmodern neo-Marxists. Could, could you name some for me? I mean, to tell me who you have in mind. Uh, who are they? Who are these? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? That's well, my problem. Why do you call... Give me no. It's again. It's not a rhetorical question yeah, for politely saying you are an idiot. You don't know what you are talking about. It's simply I would like to know because you and I like this often when you attack somebody. You said aggressively and what should read more. Tell me whom. So I'm asking you now, not read more. I don't advise you. But who are? Give me some names and so on. And who are these? Postmodern egalitarian neo-Marxist, and where do you see any kind even of, of Marxism? I see in it mostly an, an impotent, an utterly impotent moralization. 
and and he famously had a lot of trouble with that, right? Coming up with some, and and I feel like it's often a very similar situation that the the people who that when you that when you ask people who are throwing around this accusation of class reductionism, well, tell me who the class reductionists are. Come on, you know, name name, name me some names. Uh, they typically have trouble, and it's not that. I'm sure there's someone somewhere who actually does fit this description. I mean, you know, Cicero said that there's there's no there's no position so absurd that some philosopher doesn't ad, doesn't advocate it. And uh, you know whether that's true or not, it's for damn sure true that there's no position so absurd that someone on Reddit doesn't advocate it. The internet is endless. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, yeah, I'm sure you can come up with a few cases, but this certainly doesn't describe any prominent figure or tendency. On the left, and so given that, why is it being thrown around so much? Why is this like a, a bogeyman, you know, that's so much on on people's minds, you know, that certain people's minds? And I think one function that it serves is that it it's a way of disciplining people who might be seen as as going off script, either like depending on context. I mean, this is, she didn't use the phrase. It would have been funny if she did. But like even Hillary Clinton kind of accused Bernie Sanders of this, essentially, in 2016. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what all that stuff about if the, we broke up the big banks, would it end racism was, was about. Or, or in, you know, in contexts that are within, you know, the further left. Yeah. I mean, like, I think it's a way of, of sort of dismissing people who have oftentimes, I think, good and well-grounded critiques of certain kinds of like you know standpoint epistemology or of like or or of you know capital a capital r anti-racism you know tm right you know which which i think are often things that that deserve to be to be critiqued because there there are there are actually really big problems with those things the and i guess the follow-up question is again because it's in terms of like what people who throw on the term seem to mean is is <laughs> how much of a sense do you think that they the way that they're using it is is class reductionist is that synonymous with white supremacist because there's some, there's a lot of uh, it's the because the internet destroys you know conflates everything together and kind of kills all nuance so it's almost a thing of like you, like the the argument that kind of like a supposedly class reductionist thing can lead to some sort of like white supremacist or white upholding white supremacy's outcome is it's like not that's not even made anymore it's more of like it's like a, it it becomes like this identity this this, this short circuit yeah, I mean, I certainly see that. I mean, I, I don't know that everybody who who throws it around, you know, is would go that far, but I I think that is certainly an identification that you can see plenty of, you know, on left Twitter and 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 in other places, which which you know, like oftentimes I'm trying really hard to do this without like checking too many people without without name checking specific people necessarily because I I don't I mean I can. If you want me to, but I, I'm sort of inclined to think that that's probably not productive. Right. So, but I, I certainly, at least in some people's hands, who I've seen use this. I, actually, here I'll name one name because actually, I did a debate with him about this. Right. So this is this is not like exactly like stirring up some brand new shit. But mm-hmm. Tavosh, the 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 Twitch Twitch stream, you know, debate guy. I, I did, you know, I. I argued with him i don't remember when last year sometime about class reductionism and it seems like oftentimes 
at least in his in his mind, this accusation of class reductionism seems to be very associated with the accusation of like wanting like a red brown alliance, you know, which is which is a phrase that is used with shocking regularity because like what you're literally accusing somebody people somebody of when you say that is is like being a fascist or being sympathetic to you know yeah you know fascist which is again it's a, it's a really serious accusation i mean like that this is the kind of thing that like you know that's like let's take this outside kind of an accusation but you know it's thrown around all the time and so i think that i think that in in his mind the the way that the that the association goes is that well the problem with class reductionism is that people think that nothing else matters except for economics and that therefore they're they're willing to like ally with you know or align themselves with people who are you know right wing economic populists who might like hate women and immigrants and whatnot and and that again it just is such a it's such a weird accusation because there there's so there's so few people who who that you know that whole chain would accurately describe you know that there are like of course you know I mean. Like, like, okay, he's somebody who Vosh mentioned, to be fair, right? But, like, you know, again, Adolf Reed is probably accused of being a class reductionist more than just about anybody else. And, and you know, he certainly doesn't want to ally with right-wing economic populists. I mean, in, in 2016, he wrote an essay called Vote for the Line, Neoliberal Warmonger, It's Important, you know, making the case for, for tactical voting in swing states. Right. And, and I... I don't know. I mean, like, I, and, and certainly it feels very weird to me because, like, not to be, like, narcissistic and, you know, make this about myself. But, like, I, I often find it hilarious that, like, the people who the, pe- the, the people who most intensely dislike me are divided into into people who think that I'm a that, like, I'm a, like, radley shill for the Democratic Party and, you know, basically just a liberal and people who think who think that I'm a class reductionist uh, brochelist who wants a red red brown alliance, and it's like, well, I mean, I don't know, you know, I guess your mileage may vary on whether you think either of those accusations are accurate, but they certainly aren't both accurate, right? right. Like, like you know, if I'm an apologist for the Democratic Party, right, I probably don't want to ally with the the right wing of the Republican Party. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's like it's a very weird it's a very weird thing, but. But a lot of people are are very dedicated, you know, on the online left to finding ways to believe the most like luridly awful possible things about people who they might disagree with a little, right? You know, but but probably probably not that much. I mean, certainly not very much compared to like just normal people on the street. Like if you, I mean, I always say like you know if you can't handle like. People who people who think that like you know I don't know Crystal Ball is a white supremacist like man like if if you think that Crystal is like just has political disagreements with you that are just so unforgivable right that that she has to be excommunicated out of them I mean I really want you to start talking to your neighbors and your coworkers because because man you're going to find out pretty quickly that most of them have bigger disagreements with you than Crystal Ball does. Yeah. How much of how much of online internet fights seem are seemingly made worse or just exas- unnecessarily exacerbated by in the words of Matt Crisman a lack of emotional validation. 
because it's kind of a theory of like people like it's, it's almost like something of like like whenever you people whenever like for years whenever uh, you'd have like two people disagreeing on like how much of a threat that like Trump was and it's almost uh-huh. like a thing of that was just a again it was just kind of like it was almost like a trying to there was like there was something there was an emotional thing going on there it was almost like I can't trust you unless you validate how much of a personal sense of anxiety I have you know not to not to immediately psychoanalyze people you know internet creatures that way but there was definitely something like that going on it seemed like no I think there's for sure something like that going on because because it's it is really striking how many people like get mad less because of disagreements about uh, policy or or even strategy or tactics than because of disagreements about like you know threat assessment because because that's a really weird thing to get mad about like that because because what's the what like what's the goal you know if i if i think if we're disagreeing about like i don't know what what candidate to vote for or whether the union local that we're both members of should 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 go out and strike then i know what winning that argument looks like right like 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 that that they the other guy will actually like vote for the person that I think they should vote for, or they should they should do what I want them to do in the strike vote. But like, oftentimes in these arguments about you know whether whether Trump you know really represented a fascist threat to you know sort of core bourgeois democratic institutions, or he was basically a or he was basically just a uh, a Republican with like much less polite branding, you know than than most than most Republicans have like. What would the what would the upshot be, right? Like like if and and I'm somebody who who has been in a lot of those those arguments because I am you know pretty skeptical of I'm pretty skeptical of of the of the fascism analogies. Although also like you know I I've I lived in Michigan right when the election happened. So so yeah I I, I held my nose and I voted for Biden. I I didn't I didn't do it because I thought Trump was a fascist. I did it because I thought he was a Republican. Which you know, I mean, as is seems like it should be bad enough, right? You know that he's going to appoint hardcore union busters to the National Labor Relations Board, and you know, and you know, rip up climate change treaties and all that stuff. But but like, what would be what would the upshot be? Like people who are like super mad at me about that, or about like the fact that I don't think that I don't think January six was like a near miss fascist coup. I think it was just no oh, good. Good. I, I wanted to ask you about this. Okay, yeah. I thought it was notable that it doesn't come up in the book at all. Yeah, yeah. Well it's that would have been remarkable if it did. Oh, did I miss the publication date? No, 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 quarant- no, no. the whole quarantine thing has me completely just disoriented. Yeah, the the publication date was made but the but the the standard like you know the way book publishing usually works like the like the final copy edits are signed off on like almost a year before the thing comes out especially uh, especially for zero yeah yeah Got zero it. books sometimes they will rush publication sometimes you can convince them to do that but usually uh, their standard publishing schedule is 10 months between signing off on final copy edits and and the and the book actually coming out but yeah so okay, so so I want to get into this, but I mean just just to just to to set this up briefly, I I just say like okay, what's the thing that people support happening that that I that I don't right that's at stake in this in this January sixth thing is I mean it's it's certainly not like you know was the January sixth you know riot 
or or even the original protest a good thing because I think we all agreed it wasn't. It's it's certainly not like should people who who did violent things on the six be prosecuted because I think they should. It might be. I wrote an article for the Nation about this that I think it's I think it is a mistake that some progressives have called for like everybody who who trespassed to the Capitol to to be prosecuted just for that even if they didn't do anything violent. I think that's a mistake. I think it sets a terrible precedent. But like even a lot of people who disagree with me about this really insist that January 6th was a near-miss fascist coup will be like okay yeah I see your point about the trespassing thing so it's like all right at this point the Matt Crispin point like comes up really sharply because it's like so so what would your winning the argument look like would it just be that like you literally just want me to be as freaked out about it as you are like if so then yeah that does seem like a as obnoxious as it can be to psychoanalyze people who disagree with you that does really feel much more like a frustrated you know demand for emotional validation than an attempt to 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 actually win like a you know a concrete political argument but anyway so you you want to get into this what's uh, what are you going to say Jacob oh, no, I was sort of curious cuz I think particularly with some of the stuff you discussed earlier as far as Antifa goes, I think, you know, you're fairly rigorous in the way that you present arguments. And so the January 6th thing is, I think, a notable part of that conversation, whichever way you would come down on it. And I mean, if I were making the argument, I'm not saying that I necessarily endorse this thinking, but you, you could make the argument that this is, if not necessarily a successful fascist coup, it's still a fairly troubling sign. And I mean, historically speaking, fascist coups have a lot of sort of ugly abortive attempts. I mean, there was the there's the beer hall putsch, there's the march on Rome, there's a lot of these sort of pathetic things that don't quite go well and turn don't seem like much. I mean, the you know Bastille Day is you know like they messed around with a prison and took some guns. Who cares? Like there there's a read of all these things that looking back seem yeah. like deeply deeply troubling signs that people disregarded. And I think it's not unreasonable to make that argument that January 6th is a sign that there is something profoundly sick in our system and that this is symptomatic of that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, depending on what you mean by the last part, I might or might not, you know, disagree. But I think that... Well, I think once you have people walking through the halls screaming, kill Mike Pence, that's a not great for... You know the stability of the system. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's certainly a, it's certainly a disturbing you know escalation. Although, also, I, I guess the one. So I'd, I'd say a couple things about this, right? So first, that it is it is really striking if you if you want to see this as you know as like a serious like coup attempt. That well, no, I, explicitly, I do not see this okay, as a serious you, you coup attempt, coup but. Attempt. I think absurd coup attempts and absurdity in general are hallmarks of real serious things that occur later on. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you mentioned the, the Beer Hall Putsch, and although the March on Rome was the actual the actual successful one, am I getting that wrong? Well, the, there, there was definitely a, a, yes. a, 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 an earlier event leading up to the March on Rome. Like, okay. you know, they, right. have, they, they have their little attempts and their little, you know, they yeah. try things and they don't work. And I mean, you know, there are sort of abortive attempts. And I mean, even with the with all of I mean, you have 1905 before you have 1917. Like there are there are attempts that don't really go anywhere before there are serious revolutions of any kind. Yeah. So, OK, so I'm not familiar with the, the Italian case, but maybe that's not important for the argument. Uh, so, I mean, I think that, you know, the beer hall putsch is an interesting analogy because they let a guy go home. 
<laughs> he was just like, "Can I? I'm tired. Can I? Can I have a? Can I have a sick day?" And they were like, "Sure, go." <laughs> okay. I think I think I might not be familiar with some of this, but the but but it's it's not like but I mean the beer hall putsch. You know, my understanding is that you know it's not like the Nazis. You know came to power through a second like more more successful version of the beer hall putsch it's that they it's that the beer hall putsch was like an embarrassing you know catastrophe and it made them realize that they had to completely retool their their strategy and 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 try again in a completely different way so so really the like as a as a sort of cautionary tale i mean i guess for for this sort of crowd of of you know QAnon people and and whatnot who who stormed the capitol you know i guess like the really worrying thing by analogy to the beer hall putsch would be if if they if if it helped them realize that they were going about things in completely the wrong way and that they then proceeded to do what the Nazis did, which was to to build a mass movement that that could both in the streets, you know, like sort of street fighting militias, you know, the SS and the SA, and and in you know, and electorally, and you know that they could eventually come to power through regular mechanisms, sort of with after the state of emergency, kind of merging these street fighting organs with the the regular machinery you know of the state i mean I, I think that like i mean once you get down to the, you know like i think that the part of the question is you know i remember you know like freddie DeBoer i thought had a good blog post about this like you know there was never any i mean it gets a little tricky when you start talking thinking about what counts as a coup you know, attempt, you know, like, because part of what the question, you know, like, all right, because, you know, does attempted coup involve, like, there ever being the slightest possibility of success? If if so, then this is clearly not, you know, one of these. Uh, that they, since, you know, there is no universe in which a successful coup happens without the military, and, and there's never the tiniest possibility you know that they were gonna they were gonna side uh, with, with these people. I mean, not even you know, not even Pence was willing to side with these people, which, as you point out, is part of what like enraged them enough to actually to actually be willing to to do this. Not you know, I mean, this, this happened. I mean, the whole th- you know, like this happened as the end result of a process of them not getting their way through any mechanism by anybody who actually had any power, that there was a series of, of lawsuits where, where Republican appointed, even Trump appointed judges, like, laughed all of these things out of court. I mean, like, that they had, like, just summarily, I mean, like, they, they, they had, I mean, they weren't quite, like, handing down the rulings as, like, you know, pieces of paper with lol fuck no written in crayon, you know, but, like, they, they, they might as well have. And then, so, so there's never any the tiniest chance of success and and even if you take out that criteria which i think is a mistake because it's like okay so if this Indianese liberation army declares that they're in a state of revolutionary war against the united states government is that a coup attempt i mean i don't know i mean i, I guess i can understand what somebody would mean by that but i, I don't think that's what we typically mean i mean uh, if they tried to storm the capitol i think i might call it that yeah i mean the black panthers actually did storm the uh, the, the california uh, state capitol in sacramento with guns unlike unlike the january 6 protest yeah i mean there are i mean things like I mean, Bastille Day, I think, is also an interesting comparison, although 
Although I think it's also like the the burning of the like. Although then I think it's also interesting to compare like Bastille Day to like the 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 burning of the of the third precinct in uh, in Minneapolis. That like as kind of revolutionary theater, they 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 kind of look similar, right? You know that there's but and that was you know and and yeah the the significance of Bastille Day was mostly symbolic. You know, rather than substantive, as you say, but you know, like the like the idea of like a you know an angry protest where a police station ends up getting burned down. That's the kind of thing that you see in actual no kidding revolutions. But just because they, they set the they set the police station here in Portland on fire. Yeah. Well, uh, they, it wasn't quite as it wasn't quite as you know dramatic big as the Minneapolis fire. But. Somebody 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 rolled a dumpster that was on fire up near the part of the wall and I think like part of the awning caught. But okay. well no, there was a fire in the police precinct in oh. Central. Well, that's true. That was uh, yeah, there was I remember okay, now yeah, you're right. There was I remember I remember seeing that night, but yeah, but I mean like just because it's the kind of thing that that could happen in in like a real revolution, you know, you know, Arab Spring sort of situation doesn't mean that doesn't mean that that like the United States was like on the brink of a revolution last summer. I mean, it's 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 the kind of it's it's the sort of optics of a revolution, right? But the optics of a revolution aren't the same thing as a revolution. And I think something I think it's kind of the same thing on on the other end, you know, that like the what are in certain respects, you know, the the optics of of the march on Rome, right? You know, like aren't quite the same thing as as their being anything that's that is or i mean i don't want to say could turn into because god i don't i don't know right i mean i don't want to get into the like trying to to make predictions about you know like well, things. i mean that's that's exactly the point i'm making though which is that you don't know i mean we're sort of stuck in the middle of history but you can point to you know previous sort of you know events that look like they're not that much of a big deal at the time that wind up being you know enormously significant down the road and so trying to make that evaluation from the perspective of someone for example who is in antifa yeah. uh, who is very upset about this yeah. is you know I, I think i can from that perspective really get some sense of where they're coming from no okay like, this these are the sorts of events that are usually signposts of something worse coming down the road okay but i, I think that last part is where i push back the usually Right, like, 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 is this the sort of event that's usually the signpost to that, or yeah, is this the sort of event probability? That, well, no, I'm, I'm saying to be clear, what I'm saying is, when you have a major revolutionary event, there are things like this that happen. I'm not saying that when things like this happen, that means that there's going to be a revolution. Okay, so so that's fair. That's 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 good. That's a good distinction. So, given that, I I guess I wonder, like, I mean, it seems like your point cuts both ways. Right. You know, that, that one way or the other, we're in the middle of history. And so if you have something that, you know, sure looks insignificant, but could later turn out to be significant. All right. Yeah. Could later be turned out to be significant. Then again, lots of things that look insignificant later turn out to be insignificant in 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 service of of why I think certainly the way it's often talked about. Right. Like certainly in like NPR, MSNBC world. This is like this has become like a it's almost than Pearl Harbor. Yeah, right. It's like capital T, capital I, the insurrection. Yeah. And it's it's like treated as like the most important event since like the 1860s or something. And and that that seems a little deranged to me because I look at what happened here. And and yeah, look, is it are there things that 
you know, that we could rattle off that are, are disturbing about this event? Absolutely, yes. But, like, also, just for a little bit of sense of perspective, it's a pretty funny insurrection where nobody, like, on the insurrectionary side shoots anybody or tries to shoot anybody. That that, that doesn't happen a single time. I mean, it looks like hardly, you know, like, like I think there's, like, one or two, maybe there have been more since the last time I looked, but, like, out of people who've been charged, like, I think, like, as of whenever I looked, there were, like, one of them, you know, who was, who was carrying a weapon, you know, they certainly never tried to fire them. If anything, it seems like by the standards of right-wing protests, there seem to have been remarkably few guns there. I understand that some people surrendered them on their way in, although that also seems like pretty funny behavior in an insurrection. And and nobody, you know, like, yeah, there, there, was, there was one cop who early reports suggested that you know that that he'd, he'd like that that he'd physically you know fought with with uh, with rioters and that he'd later died of his injuries that turned out not to be true according to the coroner i have seen glenn greenwald posting about that at great length on his twitter look i i like <laughs> i like glenn but we you know see see above i i think i think he's too online but yeah, i 100% agree. And I, I, I think he's an, ex- an interesting example of what you sort of talk about in this book, which is that, you know, you do have to sort of make st- strategic decisions. And I don't think he I don't think that strikes him as particularly interesting. He, he's got his positions and he sticks to them. And I, I have a I have a certain respect for that. Although, I mean, I, you know, again, I do wonder if that does hurt his ability to, you know, sort of communicate. Yeah, I mean, I. I, and look, I always feel weird saying that people are are, are too online because I, I sort of feel like I'm like, you know, I you know I, I sort of feel like we're all sitting around the the coffee table and you know with the, you know the mirror and the straws and like I've got like a you know wadded up dollar bill on my nose and some blood coming out of it. I'm saying, guys, are we all snorting too much coke right now? We should snort less coke, right? Because like you know I'm pretty online, you know. I, but but I think it, I think there are some cases where you can even on uncom- uh, even uncomfortable saying yeah that's that's probably too online. But but yeah, I, I think that you know and, and it is and I'm sure that like even given what actually happened to Sicknick, you know that apparently it was not a result of injuries. He had a heart condition. Now given the timing, you know, do we think stress from dealing with a riot was a contributing factor? Yeah, almost certainly, right? But I don't know. I mean, if somebody, if a cop had a heart attack the day after a post-George Floyd protest, right, would I be comfortable saying that the protesters killed him, even if, like, it, it did turn into a riot and, and, and there was a lot of stress that contributed to that? I don't think it would. And and I think it, it just seems like I'm sure some people, well, I mean, no doubt about it, right? Even though a lot of the things that, like, were initially reported turned out not to be true, you know, the guy with the zip ties did not bring them there as part of some sort of commando plan to kidnap, you know, congressmen. He was a bartender who was there with his mom. He Apparently, he picked up some zip ties that had been dro- accidentally dropped by a cop, you know, and, and so, you know, he was photographed with them. But, I mean, he didn't, That that I think that forms no part of, of anything he's being charged with. So, so I think that, like, I think this was, I think this was considerably overhyped, which is not to say that there was nobody there who was, like, some kind of weirdo right-wing LARP or insurrectionary fantasist. I think there are for sure people like that there. I think most people who are there were probably not that. I think I think most people who were there, you know, were, were, were just rowdy protesters who, when they got inside, didn't quite know what to do with themselves and, you know, took selfies and, you know, maybe stole some stuff. And and frankly, I've been in a lot of protests in my life where there was some point where, where people were riled up and they were 
you know, not supposed to go somewhere and, you know, they, and they sort of like storm across the police lines or something like that. I mean, if, if, if I had been like in 2003, if I had been at like an answer protest in Washington, D.C. Oh, boy. And, and somehow or another, the Capitol cops dropped the ball as badly as they did on January 6th. And there was a ch- and there was some portion of the crowd that like stormed into the Capitol. Would I have gone in? Yeah, I, I probably would have. So uh, what you're saying is that the left should definitely storm the Capitol. Yes, that's the takeaway I'm getting. Yeah, there. that that that's that's that is the takeaway. And no. should storm the Capitol. And we should also uh, we should also all dress like the QAnon shaman. That's the uh, that that is that is the way that is the way to go. That is what I endorse. This is the official giving the mic to the wrong person platform. Yes. What was what was Jason's name for the guy? Was it like Hippie Jamiroquai or something like that? I think that's what he called him. <laughs> or like white or like white Jamiroquai. It was something like that, but it's um This one's kind of a minor little one that I wanted to get into, but is it is it possible for self-radicalized leftists to get out of the to get out of the rut of, you know, arguing nerd shit from 100 years ago? Right. That is a very good question. Yeah, I've got to think yes, but although also, you know, I, I am very aware that, I mean, man, if you started on this podcast right now, if you started an argument about some nerd shit from 100 years ago, I, I would 100% for sure, like... Be ready to challenge. I I would get into it, right? Yeah, like, what's like, your like, take like, on the Bowman affair? Go. <laughs> Yeah, like I yes. So I, I would, I, you know, I would, I would do that. Which of course is is a sign of the fact that like I've I've been a, a radical leftist since I was a a teenager in approximately the eighteen eighties, and and I you know and 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 which means that like or you know possibly the nine you know late nineteen nineties, but whatever, same difference. And so yeah, I mean anybody who's a radical leftist at that point is probably like a a history nerd because like what else would that be yeah right and so you know you yeah so 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 i say all this with love but yeah i I think we gotta right like and i think that as far as how we can you know you mentioned matt chrisman earlier and he has a he has a metaphor i've heard him use that that i like a lot which is that a lot of the ways that people end up fighting about politics on like left twitter and in a lot of the ways that people end up sort of figuring out what the sort of party line is that you're going to be excommunicated, mm-hmm. you know, for following, you know, he says that, like, this is all the approximate equivalent of spending all of your time building ships and bottles and then bringing your, your bottle bottle ship to uh, to the shipyard and, like, thinking that this is somehow going to to, like, make you able to, like, get an actual ship that you can you can sail on right right and and i think that because it's like yeah you end up like figuring out among a very small group of people right what your um here are all the positions that you have to take you know to to be to be on the right side of the line and then and then you your primary mode of engaging with politics is like yelling at people you know for not being on the right side of the line and then like which is which can be actually very effective within those small circles, right? Because people don't want to be excluded. Right. But then you go out into the wider world and turns out nobody gives a shit about your, like, in-group taboos because they were never part of the process of arriving at them in the in the first place. And I think you, you see a lot of this with when, you know, kind of online leftism, you know, rubs up against real-world politics. As far as 
you know, what we can do about it, this is maybe a depressing note to end on, but I think you know, this is this is the most uncomfortable part of critique because I would be really happy if I could like convince myself that there was some ready-made solution that you know that 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 I, I I've got in my back pocket and and there we go right we solved it and but that's just not the case right and and I, I don't think that'd be a very like materialist way to to think about it because you know we can't actually you know the problems with with the left and I'm not saying this to deny that there any, there's anything that we have agency over or that we can't do better I obviously think that we can but like the problems with the left aren't something that's solvable just by us like wanting to solve it hard enough uh right. like you you need external shocks to do that you know you need, you need there to be changes in the larger political landscape and we almost had one like just just last year right i mean if if you know after after nevada you know if if bernie sanders had continued his winning streak and you know these are a lot of big ifs right but like right. just just run with it for a second they, and then he'd actually been able to to secure the the democratic nomination there wasn't some sort of like last minute you know internal coup to, to stop that from happening and and he actually became president you know that doesn't mean that we would that we would be living in a socialist or even social democratic utopia by any means right or that, that he'd even necessarily be able to carry out his whole platform but it does it would have really having somebody who called himself a socialist and and, and was willing to use the presidential bully pulpit for the purposes of of mobilization as president would have dramatically shifted the political landscape and and if that had happened then i don't think all these pathologies would have disappeared necessarily but i think we would be in a much better shape yeah for for reorienting people because the more op- the more obvious the openings are in the real world, right? Here's a thing that we could actually do. You know, we could we could we could get Medicare for all. You know, we 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 could we could have like I don't know, think bigger. You know, we could have like if there was like a a wave of sit down strikes. You know, like the 1930s that you know completely revitalized. You know, the uh, the labor movement. Then then that would give people a that would create the possibility at least of see this situation where there would be things going on that would exert a kind of gravitational pull on anybody with at all the right political instincts and and it would make it a lot harder psychologically to like to to get to get excited about like relitigating the nerdship from 100 years ago yeah and you know I, I don't think a lot of people in you know like you know socialists and communists who are like involved in like the Flint sit-down strike you know, we're like devoting a lot of emotional energy to the Marx Bakunin split. So so I, I think that it is I think that it is possible that we could we could transcend this stuff. But I also think it's not entirely up to us. I think that the world has to cooperate in certain ways and you know, maybe this gets down to like a more optimistic reading of, of a point that Jacob made a minute ago about how we're we're seeing history from the inside and so so we can't know. Right, like, yeah. like like we 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 can recite the litany of failures that have happened in the past, but that that doesn't actually limit you know the possibilities for what what could happen in in the future. But until something changes externally, at the very least, I think that laying down a kind of marker for like, hey, here's all the silly counterproductive shit that the left does. Let's you know 
let's at least like let's at least like kind of label it as something that we need to get away from and try to set some kind of better example and sort of plant that flag you know if nothing else while we're waiting for for the for for history to to cooperate that can at least I think maybe help provide morale to some people on the left who might otherwise get burned out and sick of all this because they associate all of this with the left and and when they get sick of it they just get sick of the left it can it can help send a signal to people who might be winnable you know to the left but who are who are alienated by all this shit and and so I think it's I think that's worthwhile in itself but I also think that like a lot of this is going to you know I I think <laughs> You know, not to not to follow up our endorsement with of the uh, Q sh- shaman by you know by quoting Donald Trump, but I mean I think to actually drain the swamp, you know that that gives rise to what to to some of these pathologies, you know I mean I I think that that takes more than just willpower. Yeah. Uh, last the solution is simple. If someone asks you to read a book about history or a book about theory, say no. I will not allow this to enter my mind. If it doesn't come up in a podcast or in a conversation, I don't want to know about it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The one thing the left needs is more is more podcast. That that is our major problem is the uh, absence of podcasting content. Yeah. Uh, last question. Are you looking forward to Dune? <laughs> uh, I don't know that I'm looking forward to it, but I'll watch it. Yeah. I'm curious to see. Same. I'm curious to see what they'll do, and the the fact that they're actually splitting it into two features, it's like okay, well then maybe it seems I was like you know the book is effectively you know divided in two, so I think it'll I think it'll be interesting. I'm just waiting for the I want to see how they redesigned Chris Knife. Anyway, that's just been something on the back of my mind that I figured I'd ask. Okay, did anybody want to do any endorsements or recommendations, or should we just skip that because we've been going for a while? Jacob, did you have anything, Bernie, that you wanted to share? Or are you good? I do, but I mean, you know, I can do this after. So yeah, it's true. We can always do that in the in the after portion. So anyway, what well, about you, Ben? Um, any any media you've consumed that you're just super passionate about? Yeah. Well, I will say I have just started to read Matt McManus's uh, forthcoming book, Cosmopolitan Socialism: A How-To Guide. I think that's the title he's going with, which which I'm I'm excited about. You know, Matt is a very good and and clear and and analytically rigorous writer so and and i think it's an important topic so 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 yeah i'm 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 excited by that i don't know i mean i guess the you know trying to think what the last movie i saw was and it'll probably really lower the tone of the podcast if i if i started enthusing about the forever purge so maybe we'll leave it at that oh wow somebody isn't a regular listener I have talked about way dumber shit than that. But uh, yeah. Okay, cool. But anyway, oh, my recommend- purge movies rule. Yeah, my recommendations. Last movie that I saw, we still went, and, went and saw Repo Man at the local theater, which was awesome. The first time the first movie I'd the first movie I'd seen back in like a year and a half and seeing that with a live crowd was a hell of a thing. Also, yeah, I mean honestly, if you aren't getting all of your politics from movies like Repo Man and the Purge movies, like you're not a, a serious theoretician in my mind. Like this is the bed. This is the new bedrock. There you go. <laughs> Sounds good. Anyway, well, uh, thanks again for joining us, Ben. How can folks get a hold of you? Can you uh, can you give your pluggables? Sure. I write for Jacobin, jacobinmag.com. I, I host a uh, podcast called called Give Them an Argument. So if you, which which is good, you know, since it's, it's I have a way of of sharing views that doesn't require anybody to read a book and man i i have you know i i have a book called canceling comedians while the world burns a critique 
of the contemporary left, which we were we were discussing before the conversation shifted to Dune, and as they do, and, as conversations do, as conversations do, and if you want to uh, purchase a copy of your your very own, you it is in all of the places that books are typically sold. So if you want to, you know, if you want to contribute to the Jeff Bezos Space Exploration Fund, you can you can get it from Amazon. But if you if you are looking for other places to sell it, there is a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore called Red Emma's that you can order books from online. So that's redemmas.org, and they definitely have it there. Sweet. Awesome. And, well, yeah, once again, thanks a lot for for spending a... the fuck day is it? Thursday? Thursday evening with us chatting about all, you know, all sorts of pathologies and, and left online idiocies, as it were. So... Yeah. Real quick question, though. What is cancel culture? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, well, I'm doing a bit. I'll, I'll, well, I'll, I will say this. I'll, I'll, that if you want to know my answer to this question, there's a book... In, in which I in which I provide in which I provide my answer. Uh, the name of that book is Canceling Comedians While the World Burns: A Critique of the Contemporary Left, and uh, you can order it online from Red Emma's. All right, there you go. Asked and answered. All right, but uh, once again, uh, thanks, Ben. I'll let you know when this when this thing posts, and uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Yep. All right. Night. And then you can ask me a yeah, question. Of course. So, Sorry. Um, well, I don't have anything to quibble about with what you just said. But, um, but. well, no, there's not even a but, really. It's that the, even if the if what you said about Marx's more sophisticated thought is true, I think the unfortunate reality is that any support for Marxism especially directed towards those who are young, is likely to be read as support for the most radical and revolutionary proclivities. And I would say that as they're outlined in the, in the document that I described, yeah. um, in the Communist Manifesto, that they're of extraordinary danger. And so it seems to me that by attempting to you know, rescue the sheep, you've, in, you've sort of invited the dragon into the house. And that seems to me to be dangerous and unfortunate. Here I can answer you by asking you my question. Because, uh, you know, uh, very naively, uh, you mentioned, Mark, first, do you really, where did you find the data that I simply don't see it? Okay, let me begin by this. You designate your, under quotation marks, I'm not characterizing here, enemy or what you are fighting against as sometimes you call it uh, postmodern neo-Marxism. I know what you mean, all this, from political correctness yes. to these excesses of whatever uh, uh, spirit of envy and so on and so on. Do you think they are really... Where did you find this data? I don't know them. I would ask you here, give me some names or whatever. Where are the Marxists here? I don't know any. I don't... Uh, who, who is the Marxist here? 
Well, show, show me any big names of political correctness. Well, I think they, they fear like a good vampire fears garlic. Any, this is why they are already the one who is not a Marxist, but at least approaches economic topic, Bernie Sanders. He is already under attack as white male and all that stuff and so on. I simply, I simply, uh, uh, my problem would be with this one. What you describe as postmodern neo-Marxism, where is really the Marxist element in it? They are for equality. Sorry, where? They are for equality at these cultural st struggles, uh, proper names, how do we call each other? Do you see in them, in political correctness and so on, any genuine will of to change society. I don't see it. I think it's a hypermoralization, hypermoralization, which is a silent admission of a defeat. Well, That's my problem. Why do you call? Give me. No, it's, again, it's not a rhetorical question yeah, for politely saying you are an idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's simply, I would like to know. Because you, and I like this often, when you attack somebody, you said aggressively, and what should, read more, tell me whom. So I'm asking you now, not read more, I don't advise you, but who are, give me some names and so on, and who are these postmodern egalitarian neo-Marxists, and where do you see any kind even of, of Marxism? I see in it mostly... An, an impotent, an utterly impotent moralization. Please, I'm well, so sorry that I was no, too No, no, that's... that's